Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Today we are starting a seven-week journey, a series called The Heart Beneath Money. The Heart Beneath Money. And the reason I feel like I have almost no choice but to call the series that Some of you guys who are veterans in the faith, you know this. Every time you open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you want to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do you think about money? What do you think about generosity? What do you think about taxes? What do you think about caring for your elderly parents? Every time you ask Jesus about money, without fail, he's always going to end up talking about the human heart. Every single time. Every time. I told the first service, he's the worst guest ever to invite on Fox Business or CNBC. They bring people on who are going to give them two minutes of quick sound bites to talk about stocks or talk about bonds or how a real estate price is doing. And if you asked Jesus about what do you think about real estate, he'd say, well, let me tell you about the real estate my father's prepared for you in heaven. Let's talk about spiritual things. Let's talk about something that's deeper. And oh, by the way, if you love money, you'll never get there. So let's talk about your heart. Jesus would frustrate an anchor to no end because he wouldn't play their game. Jesus, every time someone asks him about money, he refuses to give a, let's put a cute little Spider-Man band-aid on your owie and pretend like everything's fine. He refuses to do that to you. He refuses to do that to me. You know why? Because he loves us so much. A loving surgeon doesn't hand out a band-aid no matter how popular a surgeon will cut you open. And we don't want that, do we? The reason I behave every Christmas with every Mercedes-Benz commercial, I react the exact same way every year with covetousness, with desiring something God has not given me, with believing God has held out on me. Do you know why? Because all year long I refuse to lay down on the surgeon's table and allow the great physician to do his work. If I would let him do his work, the shiny things of this world would not have the same attraction to me. They would not have the power that they have over me. They would be silenced false deities. And if you're new to church, I want you to know that's actually what heaven is. Every false object of worship has been silenced and taken away. So that the one who sits on the throne is there, there's no one left to worship. That's it. My wicked soul, the old Greg, has been finally and fully crucified with Christ and is gone and I'm in heaven. I'm not tempted towards sin anymore. Which is ultimately what? Taking something other than Jesus and putting it on the throne. Oh, it's going to be so good. Do you know how good it's going to feel when you don't sin against each other anymore? We don't sin against God anymore. I don't sin against you anymore. We're finally giving Jesus everything he deserves. Do you know how good that's going to feel? It's going to be good. I've had this weight on me, especially this week. And I've been asking the Lord, and it didn't come through to my small brain until this morning. God, what what is it that's bothering me about doing a seven-week series on money? There's something that's bothering me. What is it? And and I found out what it is. What's bothering me is that Jesus said, it's richer, it's easier to fit a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
That's what's bothering me. I'm a part of the industrialized world preaching to the industrialized world. And we think times are tough if we have to downgrade our data plan. Or tighten the belt. Only get 400 megs. I'm going to have to... This is really rough. I'm not going to be able to text as much as I was earlier. This is really rough. I'm not going to be able to stream unless I'm at Starbucks and I automatically connect. Hashtag first world problems. We don't even know how much we love money. Don't ask the fish about the water. They don't know. Money and what money can buy might be one of the favorite deities of the industrialized world. And I think what's been bothering me is, Greg, you know what you believe your calling is. And I think here's where fear has crept in this week. I don't know if I can fully fulfill my calling if God won't move the needle on this issue. Because I've met men that genuinely felt their calling was to not offend everybody so they got to keep a paycheck. And they called it pastoral ministry. My calling, whether it's today or in 40 years, my calling is to when I stand face to face with Jesus, I bring all you guys with me. And Jesus says, Woo! Those are some sold out Christians. Those are fully devoted followers of Christ. Wow! That conversation, when you're in leadership, you don't just hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. You get to walk into heaven and you listen to what Jesus says on the way in of everybody else who's following you into heaven. And I'm keenly interested in what Jesus says to everyone who is following me into heaven. I feel like if God would get us to worship him ahead of money, there's nothing he can't do with ARCF. That's why I feel so much weight on this. I feel like, man, there's nothing we will not give to the Lord. If he had our hearts related to money, everything else seems like it'd be small. And I don't know if that's right or if that's wrong, but that's just what's, that's what's on my heart right now related to this issue. And you guys know how to pray for me. You know how to pray for yourselves, how to pray for the rest of the church family. Citrus Heights needs to see an odd, peculiar people. Whether it relates to our money, how we do marriage, how I do ethics in the workplace, sexuality, any area of life, any sphere of life, our city desperately needs to see something that is odd. Oh, I've never seen that before. Oh, that's weird. Huh, that's different. That's what our city needs from us. That is the aim of this series, The Heart Beneath Money. This is what we're working on the next seven weeks. We're doing the dangerous work of laying down on the surgeon's table and asking God to have his way in our hearts. Because it's not about a wallet. If God has your heart, the wallet is nothing. You know that, right? I'm going to ask you, okay, let's be honest here. Let's be, authenticity is one of our core values, authentic relationships. I want to talk to the men for a second. 
Raise your hand if you're willing to publicly testify that at least at one point in your life, a woman had your heart and very shortly after, she had your wallet. Okay? I don't mean that in a manipulative sense. I don't mean that in a manipulative sense. I'm trying to illustrate it. We love our grandkids, and so somehow we find ourselves shelling out the bucks at Disneyland or whatever we're doing. Love comes first, and dollars just seem like not a big deal once the love is already there. And so we're going to ask the Lord to grow our love today. Amen? Even if that has scary implications, we're going to ask the Lord to grow our love today. Read with me Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 15. Then the Pharisees, the group of religious jerks, they met to... Listen, if you're new to church, you don't know what a Pharisee is. I have to say that. These are the uptight people. They met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples, along with the supporters of Herod. That's interesting. So supporters from the religious sector and supporters from the secular. We don't care whether he answers this question anti-Caesar or anti-Moses. Any one of them will get him killed. We don't care which. So this is supposed to be a lose-lose situation. To meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Donald Trump or not? <laughs> now, depending on your politics, insert President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton. That doesn't matter. And actually, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of the politician that you like the least. Okay? Caesar's the one who crucifies us when we riot. So however bad you hate the political party that you're not a part of, no one thinks every four years the loser is going to get crucified. It's not even on our radar. That's how bad he is hated. He's a foreign invader. We've been told from Levitical law that all of our tithes and offering and taxes go to the temple. God is our king. God is supposed to be the head over all of this. And now somebody else has come in and made himself over God, actually calls himself the king of kings and the lord of lords. That's Roman language, not biblical. That's what the Caesar called himself. He says he is over Yahweh in the title he gives himself. So we can empathize with our brothers and sisters from 2,000 years ago. They believe that the Roman tax might be blasphemy. Is it right to pay this tax or not? Verse 18. But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here. Show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them, and they went away. Holy Spirit, would you please make our hearts soft that we could receive what you're saying to us today through your word. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, God's people said. Amen. 
Here's your first blank, and it's straight from what Jesus just said. Your entire life is a stewardship, not an ownership. My entire life is a stewardship, not an ownership. Isn't that interesting what Jesus said? He gives no explanation. Hey, so Caesar's face is on that coin. Give it to him. But, oh, hey, make sure to give to God what has his face on it. And then he doesn't stop and give me a bullet-pointed list, does he? Did he give? A, did you guys see a list? Was it in there and I missed it? Because you see, these are devout Jews. They believe Genesis when it says, in his image he created them, male and female, he created them. They already know this language. All of a person's existence, body, soul, spirit, mind, passions, dreams, are marked by our maker. They knew that. So he didn't have to explain it to them. Everything that has God's image on it, give it to him. And this just fights and fights and fights against little church rule followers. I've told you guys many times before that when I was a youth pastor, young men would come to me with the wrong question. They'd come to me saying, how far can I go with a girl? That's not the heart of a Christ follower to say, how much can I do before it's sin? The question of a Christ follower is, how do I pursue holiness? It's a totally different worldview. That same religious uptight, I'm going to obey just as much as I have to to get God off my back, those are the people that get really upset with the letter of the law and with tithing. How much of my money do I have to give to God? And Jesus just took your apple cart and he tossed it. Jesus just said, um, what's this my you speak of? The Psalms say it this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The fullness thereof is fancy language for you own none of it. I own none of it. How much of my money do I have to give to God? How nice do I have to be to my wife? Just nice enough to her that God won't be upset with me. Any ladies, did your heart just flutter right there when you thought for a second of your husband or your boyfriend going, all right, God, how nice do I have to be to her? Is that just like, wow, I'll never let go, Jack, you know? <laughs> no, your heart did not flutter. Your heart did not flutter when you consider a romantic relationship of somebody saying, how can I give the least possible to not make God upset? But because I think I own my money, I do that with my money all the time. Hey, God, is there an anger point? Like, if I give this little, you'll be angry. But if I give this, you'll just be mildly upset. You guys know what mildly upset is, right? It's when the Patriots and the Eagles face off in the Super Bowl. And I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I hate both of these teams. I'm really upset that one of them won. And I'm only mildly upset that the other team made it. That's moderately upset. Religious thinking is, how much do I have to give of me and mine? No. That's not how it works. Because you see, my entire life is a stewardship, not an ownership. Let me ask a question you guys already know the answer to. You take $10,000 and you deposit it in the bank, 
you had a windfall that you didn't see coming. So you put it away in the bank. You go home. And you talk to your spouse about it if you're married. If you're single, you're thinking about it, praying about it, talking about it with people you trust to give you a a wise word. And a few days later, you finally come to a decision of what you're going to do with this windfall. And you go into the bank and you say, I'd like to withdraw $10,000, please. The manager says, yeah, about that. So my brother-in-law was hurt. He's, He's facing some really hard times. I needed to borrow a little bit of it to take care of my brother-in-law. And, you know, my boat payment was more than 30 days delinquent. And I really like that boat. You should, you should see this boat. This is a really pretty boat. And, and so I made that. I just got current on that real quick. Listen, I'm good for it. I'm good for it. I'll totally pay you back. So don't worry about a thing. What are you feeling in that moment? Hmm? Yeah, if there's an emotion called murder, you're just two steps beneath that, right? Excuse me. Okay? Every one of us knows that those who work at a bank are stewards, not owners. We all know that. So I'm not surprising any Christians when I say you don't own your money, you're stewarding God's money. You know that. I know that. We don't have a head knowledge issue. We don't have a lack of Bible verses issue. What we have is, is an obedience issue. And obedience is down here. I refuse to believe that I am not the owner. Let me ask you an important hypothetical question right now. Who is moving my left hand? Who's moving my left hand? Because I thought the earth was the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's his hand. He created the hydrogen molecule, the oxygen molecule, the carbon molecule. He designed what a bone is. He designed what a tendon and a muscle are. He designed blood conceptually. He made it exist by speaking it into existence. He gave me this arm and he can take it away at a moment's notice. Who's moving this arm? That is a stewardship. I think that it's my arm because I'm controlling it. You and I are tempted to believe that control means ownership, and it doesn't. I control all kinds of things that aren't mine. Do you know who could ruin my marriage to Emily? I can. All I have to do is utterly reject everything God has said about marriage. He created marriage. He created Emily. He created me. And because he has stewarded that relationship between Emily and I, either one of us, it doesn't take two people to end a marriage. Some of you guys know that the hard way. It only takes one person to end a marriage, to ruin it. It is our marriage. But marriage is God's. I think because I control it that I own it, and I don't. I control it because I am a steward over it. And therein lies one of the big hang-ups of why evangelicals in North America give 2.5% of their income to their local church. What? Is your tomb even empty? What gospel have you heard? 
2.5, the server at BJ's gets 20%. Like, what the heck? Because I think I own something, and I think that I own something because I control it. I don't realize that God has entrusted me with something. Next blank. Down belief beneath uh, your entire life is a stewardship, not ownership. Here's one implication. Biblical instruction is not God telling you how to spend your money. It's God telling you how to spend his. Right? Should I just close in prayer? Should I just leave? Like we're done now. There is not one single rule, command, encouragement in this entire book where God has ever told anybody how to spend their money. It's just never happened. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He has never, ever told you how to behave sexually with your body. He's told you how to behave sexually with his body. You were bought at a high price. See, stewardship isn't the same as ownership. I am stewarding this body I control this body because of that stewardship. I am not an owner. I'm paying rent right now. I am renting this thing. And I actually can't afford the rent. Every breath of oxygen is grace from God. I woke up this morning, that's the grace of God. My blood's still flowing, that's the grace of God. Biblical instruction is not telling you how to spend your money. It's God telling you how to spend his Turn with me. We'll do this real quick and we need to wrap up. Luke 16. Luke chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 10. This is Jesus speaking. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. That's interesting. Jesus has confidence in you. You are faithful to small things. You're going to be faithful to big things. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? Let me, let me extrapolate that one. If you're paid minimum wage to keep somebody's four-year-old alive at a daycare, it was basic stuff. Snacks, sing a song, playtime. If you can't do that for half of a day when you got to have a lunch break, how on earth are you going to be a parent where you don't get a lunch break? And my parents said, amen, right? Hot food? I did that in 2001. <laughs> you know, if you can't watch somebody else's kids for four hours, how are you going to be a parent 24 hours a day? Verse 13. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. Two blanks that are primarily from verse 11. First, some of us think financial obedience is something for mature Christians to do. But God seems to think financial obedience is quite basic. God seems to think financial obedience is quite basic. Listen to Jesus' language again in verse 11. If you're untrustworthy with worldly wealth, who 
will entrust you with the true riches of heaven. Does it scare you at all? I had a good conversation with Neil DeBeer in between services about this. Does it scare you at all that he doesn't even bother breaking apart and extrapolating for you what those true riches are? You don't even know. I don't even know all the things God wants to entrust us with, but we've been unfaithful with basic things like money. Real basic things. I said to Neil, out of horror and wonder, I wonder if the revival that I pray for is the spiritual thing that God won't entrust me with yet, because I can't handle basic things like money. I want the stuff that no one dreams of. I want, I want two-thirds of our city to believe the gospel like that. Culture-altering, world-shattering faith. You know, the spiritual things. The things that only God can dole out. The things only God can do. What if this actually has to do with me? What if I have been unfaithful with the basic things? And I want much greater things, but I have not been faithful with the small things. God seems to think financial obedience is quite basic. I grew up in church, and so it was very common that people would talk as if they were varsity Christians, and they just took all obedience, and they used it as an excuse. They used an excuse for my disobedience. Well, that, that's just something really, really awesome Christians do. You didn't get that from the Bible. You made that up. Obedience is for Christians. It's for all of us. Disobedience, praise God, if you have the Holy Spirit, is a temporary thing that the Holy Spirit is waging war against every sin in my heart and in yours. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God and the family of faith, is waging war, and He's going to win that war. Amen? You guys know the sin that bothers you so much. I wish I would stop doing this. I wish I would stop saying that. You know the Holy Spirit's going to win. Even if that final victory doesn't show itself until you're in heaven with Jesus one day, He is going to win. The sovereign God does not lose. That's what sovereignty is. He gets what he wants. Last blank. You do not know what spiritual realities you're missing out on because you don't even obey God with your money. You and I do not know what spiritual realities we're missing out on because we won't obey God with our money. So, if God owns it all, and I steward some of it, I own none of it, but I steward some of it, can we agree that if I found out today that all of my dollars were not mine, but they're actually God's, does that allow me to breathe easier or does that increase my stress? Does my stress go up or does my stress go down? I have one vote for down. It depends. So it depends. The old Greg, born of the flesh in rebellion, he doesn't trust God, so his stress goes up. The new Greg, born of the Spirit, his stress goes down. Because I'm like, wait, all I have to do is whatever Jesus says because it's his money? Awesome. How much responsibility goes away when you find out someone else is going to give the instructions for it? The Spirit-filled self finds relief. Oh, so I just do whatever God says. Oh, I need an easy button. That gave me an easy button. Rock on. Okay? So since our money is not ours, and our time and our passion and our energy are not ours, then I can bring a brother to you who's got a really cool ministry opportunity. And he's not going to ask you for your money because you don't have any. He's about to ask you for God's money 
and I'm excited about it because I got to hear him last year. I got to hear him this morning. Would you please give an ARCF welcome to Brother Bob Pearson from Horizon International? Good morning, everyone. I'm going to do this real fast because I have a, a flight to catch to Indianapolis. Is that fair? Sorry, Greg's an awesome speaker. Would you give him a round of applause? Child sponsorship works. It works. Let me tell you a story. Horizon International is all about creating a world of hope through African orphans. And I want to illustrate this. All right? Back in May 2009, I drove from San Diego to join the first service about halfway through. We just received word the day before that our children's home, Chester Children's Home in Mount Darwin District, Zimbabwe, had been invaded by soldiers and had taken over our girls' home there. We were told that the girls and residents were being raped repeatedly. Some of you remember that experience. And I came here, and this congregation, remember, Dennis, this congregation gave a record missions offering that still stands. Incredible. And so, there was a girl, nine years of age, in that group of girls. A month earlier, she had witnessed the murder of her parents by these same soldiers. And now, as nine years of age, living with that trauma, she had been raped repeatedly and would continue to be for the next month. This had just happened when I came here. And this young nine-year-old girl's name was Sandra. I will never forget a, a Northern California couple who were with me when I first met Sandra. Pastor Don and Debbie Bergstrom, who used to pastor in San Jose. For years they were here at Pacific Grove in San Jose. And Don and Debbie were with me, and we were all broken at the plight of this nine-year-old girl. That was 11 years ago. I just saw Sandra. I was just with her a few weeks ago. And she said, Dad, you're right, I'm her child sponsor. She said, Dad, I want to be an architect. That statement was laden with meaning because she had just graduated from high school in the country of Zimbabwe because of my $40 a month that provided for her food, clothing, education, and basic health care. And she said, Dad, I found a school in Johannesburg, South Africa. Can, you, can, we, can we count? Can I, be, can I go? I said, absolutely. And so next year, she will be one of a growing number of kids, now numbering 30, who will receive a full scholarship from our organization 
because of people in this congregation and others who are part of our tenfold team giving $10 or more a month. And, and uh, she was so excited about the possibility. And I, I took her aside and I said, Sandra, I know that your beginning nearly destroyed you. She said, Dad, I don't even think about it anymore. She said, you think about it more than I think about it. That is the power of child sponsorship. I started Horizon International. We've been in partnership together. We're just about ready to launch our 20th year of ministry. Together, you were the first church to come on board with us. And we have scores and scores of kids sponsored through this congregation. Thank you, Kay, and thank you all for what you guys do. But there are a number of new persons among you. I want to share with you that when I started this ministry, there were 12.1 million children under the age of 14 who had lost their moms and their dads. Today, there are more kids than ever before. But we don't hear about it because our media has moved on to other things. And yet, God loves these kids. He doesn't want them to be a statistic. And he leaves it up to us to change their lives and introduce them to Jesus Christ. They are real, live kids. We have some high-priority kids on the back table where Chris Dancy is. If you can give up a Starbucks or two a week, you can change the life of a child, introduce them to Jesus, and give them the hope of Christ, just like Sandra has been given. Let's keep the tradition going today. Amen? Let's keep it working for the sake of Christ because we've already raised a generation successfully from that first moment when we sponsored 18 kids years ago. And Dennis, some of those kids are now on our Horizon Africa staff. That's the power of child sponsorship. And you can continue the tradition and help us save and raise a second generation. I am just turning 65 this year but I want to remind you that Mother Teresa, my role model, continued until she died at almost 90. I feel like I'm just beginning. Will you join me with this second generation? 40 bucks a month. See us at the table. Amen. And me if I have to run out the door in real quick session. If God is calling you to do this, see us quickly at the table. Thank you.